leadership development for the sake of better leaders? Not enough, says today's guest. On this episode, why talent development should tie in with organizational results. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 435. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. A question that comes up to me a bunch is, how do I help really support leadership development in the organization, either through informal interactions but also through formal training programs. And it is a skill set that many of us have never necessarily developed, especially as leaders and organizations, of how to really do that intentionally. Today, we're going to really explore how to tie leadership development to business results. And I am pleased to welcome back to the show someone who has been a wonderful guide and mentor to me, not only throughout my education, but also in my professional work of how to really think about leadership development in a very practical way. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Mark Allen. He is an educator, speaker, consultant, and author who specializes in talent management, corporate universities, and human resources. He is the author of AHA Moments in Talent Management, The Next Generation of Corporate Universities, and The Corporate University Handbook. In 2017, he was honored with the Global Training and Development Leadership Award by the World Human Resource Development Congress, and he was recently named as one of the top 100 human resource influencers by Engagedly. Mark is a professor at Pepperdine University's Graziadio School of Business and Management, where he also serves as academic director of the Master of Science in Human Resources program. He's also a senior faculty member of the Human Capital Institute and an award-winning teacher, which I can personally vouch for because he was my teacher back in my graduate work at Pepperdine. Mark, I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Dave, I'm happy to be here. Well, we've set this up as talking about how to really drive leadership development. And I think maybe before we jump in, we should probably tackle some terminology here. When I started working at Dale Carnegie 15, 16 years ago, everyone was talking about training and development. And then it was learning and development. And now we've got this term talent development. Uh, could you help us frame like <laughs> what all this terminology means and the progression of it? Yeah, I think we started with training and development, which is what it was called for so many years. But I heard people object to the word training, and I've actually heard people say, well, you train dogs. Well, that's true. You do train dogs, but you also train surgeons and pilots. I don't think there's anything wrong with the word training. And personally, when I get on a plane, I want to make sure that pilot has been trained. And, right. and if I ever do go under the knife, I would like a well-trained surgeon. But the word training has gone out of, out of favor. And Sort of the, the difference is training is usually thought of around a specific skill, whereas development is more around personal development, around skills like leadership. So when we got rid of the word training, we moved into learning and development, which is what a lot of departments are called now, L&D, learning and development, because nobody objects to learning. And now, of course, we say a lot, talent development and if you recall a few years ago, ASGD, the American Society for Training and Development, changed their name to ATD, 
which is the Association for Talent Development. Right, yeah. Because the word talent has come into favor uh, quite a bit because, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we use the word talent as if it were synonymous for the word people. But every organization has some incredibly talented people and some somewhat talented people and some other people. (laughs) Right. And I think the real value, of course, is in talented people and maximizing the talent in your organization. And so that's why we're using the word talent pretty heavily right now. There is a lot of shift going on right now, and particularly there's a big shift coming up in demographics. That's already happening in a lot of places, certainly here in North American culture. When we think about demographics, what's happening? What's changing? Well, you're absolutely right, Dave. Shift happens. And in this case, we're looking at the baby boomers. And it's so funny because everywhere I go, I hear people talking about millennials and how they're invading our workforce with various stereotypical characteristics, most of which aren't, of course, true across a broad spectrum of millions of people. But I think we don't talk enough about that fine group of people known as baby boomers because it's not just about the characteristics of people in that group. And that drives me crazy when they say, well, they're conservative and establishment and technology averse. And of course, before we ever called them baby boomers, they were called hippies. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And we're the exact opposite of what we think of them now. But the real reason to talk about the baby boomers is because of the demographics. The baby boom, as we know, started in 1946 when soldiers came back from World War II. The war ended in 45. Soldiers came home in 45. A lot of babies were born in 46 to the surprise of no one. Uh, What was surprising is that boom in the number of babies lasted for 18 years until 1964. And, you know, we hear boom and we think, oh, that's a lot of babies. But in fact, at the peak of the baby boom, there were 4 million babies being born a year in the U.S. So on average, throughout that 18-year baby boom, there were 10,000 babies per day, on average, born in the U.S. An average of 10,000 a day for 18 years. And while that's interesting to look at a lot of babies, those first baby boomers all are turning 73 this year. So we're on the cusp of an 18-year boom in 73-year-olds, which is about the age people tend to retire, give or take. So we're going to see a mass exodus from the workforce. When you are thinking about this and talking to organizations that are sort of grappling with this big demographic change that is coming and and is real. What are people thinking on this yet? Uh, Or are they thinking on it? Well, that's just it. In a lot of organizations, they're not really thinking about it. They haven't really looked at the demographics. Almost every organization I talk to is planning for growth, right? I mean, that's the deal. You're supposed to get bigger and, and that means grow revenue and grow revenue usually means grow headcount. And if you haven't thought it through and looked at the demographics, what a lot of organizations do is assume the talent. In other words, as we grow, as we need more talent, it will be available. And I think they think that because that's been a reasonable assumption through the years. Whenever we've needed talent, there was talent available. But when I say talent, I'm not just talking about bodies. I'm talking about people with the right skills. And you always say, I can't find good people. Well, yeah. it's not like you're finding evil people. What they mean is we're not finding people with the right skills. And right now, unemployment is under 4% in the U.S., 3.8% or so. 
and we're having trouble finding good people. And this is before the mass exodus of the baby boomers. So I think it's not reasonable to assume talent. The other thing people are thinking is, well, new technologies like robotics and artificial intelligence will help. Well, it will help in some jobs, not in others. Of course, we will need people to build the robots and design the artificial intelligence. And that will just, like most technology innovations, will create more jobs. If you remember 30 years ago when information technology became popular, people were saying, well, so much of this technology will replace some jobs, like telephone operators. And it's true, it did. But, you know, we live here in California where the biggest industry is, of course, information technology. Mm. And so there will be new jobs created at higher levels. So overall, I think we're looking at a zero or less than zero sum game. One of the reasons I wanted to ask you about this, because I, I think it's looking at the big picture is really important when you think about talent development within an organization, because as hard as it is to find the talent we want in organizations now, chances are if the demographics don't, unless something else changes substantially in the next five or 10 years, it's going to get harder for organizations to find that talent. Absolutely. And so this is where the learning and development function comes in. You know, you can buy or build. And if there isn't much of a market for buying, you can compete with everyone else for the scarce talent, or you can develop the talent you already have in your organization. And of course, everywhere I go, people say, people are our greatest asset. Well, the learning and development function actually increases the asset value of your most valuable asset without having to bring in new assets into the organization. I've had a number of folks in our academy community over the last year who have said some version of... I either have an interest in doing this or my organization is turning to me and saying, we'd like you to have a seat at the table or spearhead doing some leadership development work. And they're not folks who are traditionally in the talent development or learning development group. They're folks who are you know, line managers, executives. And they often find it like, well, where do I even start? And I, one of the things I know you're really big on is tying leadership development to business results. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, you're right. It's, it's a tough spot to be in to get tapped on the shoulder and say, we need you to help develop our people. But it's an enviable spot because it is a very, you know, I view corporate universities as a strategic lever. Um, a lever is a small stick that can move a large object. So you're really in a position to really make a difference with learning and development. And I think when we say make a difference, I mean, make a difference in delivering business results. And this is going to sound a little paradoxical on a show called Coaching for Leaders, but I think the focus should not be on leadership development. Um, and the reason I say that, not that I think leadership is a bad thing, but I think too often our leadership development programs are focused on just that, leadership. And leadership is not a business outcome. Leadership is a means to an end. And all too often, our leadership development programs are focused on delivering the outcome of leadership. And leadership, well, people say, well, isn't leadership a good thing? And I'm sure you would say yes. Yeah. Uh, leadership is a good thing if it delivers business results. It's not a good thing if it doesn't deliver business results. And I've seen too many leadership development programs where we go off-site and we climb ropes and Dave, I'm going to fall backwards. Please catch me, and then I will trust you more. <laughs> and we all have a great time, and we think we're better leaders, and then we go back to work. 
And all that's great, but if it doesn't deliver better business results, if we don't deliver more revenue or more profit or more customer satisfaction or more quality or whatever our business goals are, all that rope climbing and leadership development and making me a better communicator and a, uh, have a higher EQ, those are nice to have, but they're not difference makers unless they drive a business outcome. One of the quotes you sent to me before our conversation was, research shows that 60 to 90% of all learning from development programs is never used on the job. And much as I'd like to take credit for that, I will give credit where credit is due. And that's Jack Phillips, who's done a ton of work on the ROI of training. And I trust his research. And even if you don't trust his research, I think uh, you and I and most of our listeners would agree that we've all gone through training programs at work that were either A, a waste of time, or B, hey, that was interesting and I learned stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you go back to work and never use it. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like a waste of time when you're going through it, but if you never use it, there's no real value to the organization. And so I think that right there is both the tragedy and the opportunity. The tragedy is in the US, we spend over $150 billion a year on learning and development programs. And if something like 75% is never used, we're wasting $120 billion a year delivering training that never actually gets used. Mm. That's the tragedy. But the flip side of that, of course, is an opportunity to do better. Yeah, which I want to get to. And just to reinforce what you've said, I recall years ago, one of my very first interactions as a Carnegie person going into a business was, I remember my boss and I had a sit-down meeting with an organization and we were talking about a training program we would do for them. And we went in with the intention of having a conversation about ROI and business outcomes and how we were going to measure it. And we could not we had more we spent more time talking about the sandwiches that were going to be served at lunch which is i've come to realize is also an important thing but i remember we walked in the elevator and we were taking the elevator down and i was like i turned to him i said how is it that we could have a conversation like an hour long conversation about learning and development and not ever talk about results with this company and he said you'd be surprised how often this happens and and sure enough, like a lot of my career was like that. It was if there was a conversation about results, it was very generalized. It was not a specific. Let's tie in to what we're developing as a program around. Here's the business outcome that we want. And, and that's why I say, you know, if you focus on leadership as an outcome of leadership development, it's going to be real hard to deliver business results. Now, you and I both know there are some very good business results that can derive from excellent leadership. It could be revenue growth. It could be employee engagement. It could be reduced turnover. But if you ask me to design a leadership development program to deliver revenue growth, I could design such a program. If you ask me to deliver a leadership development program to deliver greater engagement, I could design that program. But they would be different programs. Right. Yeah. And different for different organizations, depending on the context that's happening. Absolutely. And, you know, we always talk about profits, but there are a lot of nonprofits and government agencies that also have what we would call business outcomes that aren't necessarily profit, but it's things like customer service, customer satisfaction, serving an underserved group. And the right kind of leadership can deliver really good outcomes, but a different kind of leadership might be neutral. Yeah. I'm thinking about the person who's listening, who's thinking like, okay, I've been, I've been tasked with this. this. I'm involved in this conversation. 
we're putting together a leadership development program and we're putting in all the traditional things you put in, delegation and how to run meetings and all that stuff that goes in there. And where to start? So if you're hearing this and thinking like, okay, I, I want to really tie into creating business outcomes and business results. Where's the place to begin that thinking? It's going to sound like a cliche, but begin with the end in mind, mm. right? What is the business outcome? What is the desired deliverable that we want to see after people have gone through whatever this program is, whether it's class or coaching and mentoring or action learning? What difference do we want to see in our business results and design towards that end? I think begin with the end in mind was one of Stephen Covey's seven habits. Yeah. But to quote another guru and one of my heroes, Don Kirkpatrick came up with the four levels of evaluation. You do a, a learning program, you can assess reaction and ask people what they thought about the program right after, which almost all programs do. And that's where you find out the room was too cold, but your sandwiches were really good. Right. Yeah. And you can assess learning. You can give a test to see if they learned what they were supposed to learn. And levels one and two are nice, but they're nowhere near business results because people might have loved the program and they might have learned a lot. But as you just quoted, 75% of the time or more, they're never using it, mm -hmm. which is why Kirkpatrick's levels three and four are behavior change. Are we actually doing anything with the learning? And number four is results. And the thing about evaluation is it's not something to be done after the fact. Let's run a program and see how we did it. It's something to be baked in up front. Because if you're going to do level four evaluation, meaning you're going to evaluate based on results, if you begin with what those desired results are in mind, you know what you're designing for and you know how you're going to be measured. And now you've got a very specific target to shoot at. And it turns out whether you're an experienced instructional designer or that guy you just mentioned who's been tapped on the shoulder, if they know what they're designing for, if they know what they're going to be measured against, then you can design a program very specifically to, to hit those business goals. And if you do, you set yourself apart from so many other organizations and programs out there. You taught me Kirkpatrick's model 13 or 14 years ago, and I brought it into almost every interaction I had of developing training programs. And I can count on one hand easily how many times that was really intentional of the program design of thinking about how we were going to evaluate and numbers, even though we'd bring it in, because the it's not so much that there wasn't the willingness, but it's just there wasn't the time spent up front of the thoughtfulness and the strategy around uh, how are we going to build evaluation into the program. And when it did happen, a lot of times it was an afterthought. Of course. And and you know why we always do level one, those smile sheets at the end. Yeah. How, how was the per, you know rate on a scale of one yeah. to five at the end of the day? And we do that almost 100% of the time, not because it's the most useful form of evaluation, but it's the easiest. And it's cheap, right? Cheap and easy. Yeah. And cheap and easy, they win every time. <laughs> level four evaluation, are we getting the business results? That's hard. Mm. But you know what else is hard? spending a lot of money on training programs and not getting any results. Right. And so typically that guy who's been tapped and developed something to show their success at the end, they show the smile sheets and say, look, people were very happy with this program. We got a good reaction or maybe even some test results. Look, people passed the test. Yeah. That's nice. But so what are we pleasing customers? Are we making money off of this? And I think if I'm recalling some of what you taught me on this, of for sure do that because it's easy to do. 
that I mean, and you get some information. Yeah, especially I mean, the one thing I found is like, especially those smile sheets, hand them out. Like, if something didn't work or something was a real problem, like you find out that pretty quickly. Like yes. the room was freezing or whatever. Like that comes out. And there's value at the extremes. This course was great. This course was horrible. Right, right. But if something gets a four point six on a five point scale and something else gets a four point five two. You know, eight one hundredths of a point is pretty meaningless. I don't even yeah. know what a hundredths of a point of satisfaction means. Yeah, yeah. So it's not. This isn't an or. It's an and. You know. So do the easy stuff. Yes, of course. And think in advance of like how you're going to actually build the evaluation component into what you're trying to do. Tactically, you are a proponent of a seventy twenty ten rule. Tell me about that. Some research from the Center for Creative Leadership over twenty five years ago looked at how people get good at their jobs. And so, Dave, I assume you went to college at some point in your career? I did. And you spent four years, you studied hard, and at that point you learned every bit of knowledge and skill you needed to successfully sustain you throughout your successful career. Is that? Uh, Yeah, that lasted about a day. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you look at successful people like yourself, you discover that what they know and what they know how to do 70% of it came experientially. They learned on the job. 20% somebody showed them, a coach or a mentor. 10% they got in classrooms, formal education, higher education, training programs at work or at corporate universities. Um, Does that sound about right to you? It sounds about right from my experience. Yeah. Yeah. And most people agree based on our own experience, but also based on the research, that's the case. And yet, When we sit down with employees and do a development plan and decide, Dave, you're great at your job, but there's one one skill we'd like to add, one new competency. The solution for that is almost always, we're going to send you to a class. We know 90% of everything you already know how to do, you got through other means, but somehow we think that next competency, we can just drop in with, with a class. And so ideally, you develop their next competency, your next skills, through three dimensions. Approximately 70% should be experiential. We'll put you on a project, put you on a team, do action learning. 20% will get you a coach or a mentor, somebody to guide you through it. And 10% of it will send you to a class. Right. Your thinking on this has influenced me in so many ways. I don't even, I've told you, I mean, so much of our academy, like we really don't have a a formal curriculum. There's a ton of structure, but it's all about the experiential stuff. It's getting people out and doing movement and coming back and then using community to move people forward. And the thing, the reason is because I found so many people have done so many of the classes and the training programs, and in some cases have had some really great things come out of it, but now are needing to keep moving on their next step. And that's not enough anymore. There's not, there's not enough. It's about the behavior change. It's much more than just about the knowledge piece. Right. And so to give you a few examples a few years ago, I had a client who was in the coal mining industry, which, as it turns out, is still an industry in the U.S., and it's a very dangerous industry. And so this client was tasked with training coal miners how to be a coal miner, but especially safety. And, of course, the wrong way to do it would be to sit people in a classroom and lecture at them about what it's like in a coal mine and what you should do. Um, So what they did is they built a 100,000 square foot simulated coal mine and they would walk people through and it was dark and I had the opportunity to go through it. And even though you're above ground, you feel claustrophobic underground. 
and it's dark, and then they simulate things that happen in coal mines, like the power goes out, and then it's really dark, or a fire breaks out, or water starts starts seeping in, and there's a flood. So rather than tell people, here's what you do when the lights go out, you put them in a simulated coal mine and turn the lights out. They also had a virtual reality coal mine where you're in a small room, but you put on a virtual reality headset and suddenly you can see down long shafts. Um, I even drove a simulated dump truck, which is really the only kind of dump truck I should ever be allowed to drive. (laughs) But you really had the feel of when they dumped that simulated dirt in the back of my imaginary truck, the seat I was on bounced. And my truck handled very differently when I drove away than when I drove in. Oh, interesting. And so, I mean, they spent money on this, but it was very effective in both training people what it's like in a coal mine, but also driving safety outcomes. Well, thinking of safety, I mean, for decades and decades, uh, aviation has made a huge investment in simulators and how proficient pilots are of handling just about, I mean, look at the incredible safety record of especially here in the U.S. of domestic airlines over the last decade has been driven by so much of simulation and and handling problems that come up in real time. Yes, there's a classroom component to that, of course, of becoming a pilot, but most of it is the process of learning and and actually by doing and, and the behavior of the actual carrying out the task. Right. And of course, in that industry, aviation, it's by necessity. You can't tell people what it's like to fly a plane and then throw them behind the wheel and send them up there and hope for the best. I had the pleasure of teaching my sons to drive as teenagers, and and you will be facing that in a few years. Yes, I will. You can take kids out on an empty road in a car and give them their first experience behind the wheel and see just how poorly they perform, but you don't want to let pilots do that at 10,000 feet. So simulation became out of necessity for the aviation industry, And I think other industries haven't adopted those technologies. And whether it's aviation or coal mining, you can do simulations brilliantly. And that's a much better form of education than classroom. One of the clients you've worked with for many years is Farmers Insurance. And, you know, I think sometimes like we see things like, well, coal mining, aviation, like that's really different than what I do. But an insurance company is is similar in some ways to a lot of the kind of the office work that a lot of professionals are doing. How did they take this knowledge of like getting into the doing the behavior change and apply it in strategy around talent development. So the University of Farmers has been a, a terrific example because first of all, that company is such a believer in learning and development. They've actually branded their company around the University of Farmers. You've seen their commercials and all of that. And when they first created the University of Farmers, it was very thoughtful. And one decision they made early on was they would not do any program unless it was tied to a specific business outcome. And they also decided early on that they would measure everything they do at all four Kirkpatrick levels. So they would measure reaction, but they would also measure learning behavior change and results. So on the simple side of the equation, you can think of sales training. And if you're going to train an insurance agent to sell more life insurance, You bring them in a classroom, you talk about how to sell life insurance, and then you measure results. You look at before and after sales, and sales are a very easy business outcome to measure. But there are a lot of other outcomes you can look for in a financial services company, and specifically in in a property and casualty insurance company. Things like revenue and profitability, of course, 
customer retention, customer satisfaction, claims accuracy. Um, and one of the things I learned working with this organization is insurance companies, or at least farmers, isn't the evil entity that tries to take all our premiums and then pay us as little as possible when we have a loss. They were genuinely interested in paying a fair amount when somebody did suffer a loss. They certainly don't want to pay too much because that's not financially responsible, but they also don't want to pay too little, both because they want people to be made whole and they want happy, satisfied customers. Sure. And so their business outcome, they called claims accuracy. And rather than just bringing prospective claims agents into a classroom and talking about it, they might start with that. But their corporate university actually had a facility and in it, they had cars that had been smacked up and um, smashed up motorcycles. They had a house in there with a burned up kitchen and a flooded living room. And rather than talk about what a burned kitchen might look like, or God forbid, show slide pictures of them. They brought people in hands-on and showed them what it looks like and how to assess damages. And so that 70%, that experiential learning became a vital part of how they trained people. And then they went ahead and measured everything in terms of business results. And before they would even take on a project, they would ask the first question, what are the business results we're trying to drive here? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where it gets sticky when somebody says, let's do leadership development. Leadership's not a business outcome. Yeah. But Farmers was in the top 10 in the training magazine, top 125 for a number of years. And I think in 2011, they were named number one in the world by training magazine. You, more so than anyone I know, are really an expert at corporate universities. You've been doing this work your entire career. When you are called in by a company to assess how can we do this better? How can we develop a training program or develop even a corporate university? What's one or two things that if that executive leadership team or that leader are willing to do or think at the beginning that makes a positive difference? What and are those? It's funny because when I go in, I, I do that thing that people really hate about consultants where they call me in and maybe it's even for just a day or a few days and they want me to tell them stuff. And the first thing I do is ask them stuff. And so I start with the question, why are you desiring a corporate university? Why do you want to start one? Um, and first of all, if there's eight people in the room, I usually get eight different answers, which means it's going to be really hard to hit a target that might nail it for one of them and miss for seven. So I get some dialogue going about what we're trying to accomplish here. And then I focus that dialogue on what are the business outcomes you're trying to drive. And if I can instill in them the mindset that everything you do as a corporate university or as a learning and development department or as a talent development professional should be focused on delivering specific business results, it gets a lot easier because like every other function in an organization, learning and development will always say we don't have enough resources. Well, that's true. Nobody has as much resources as they want in terms of money, people, and time, but you've got some resources. And if you can focus those resources in driving business outcomes, then you're that strategic lever. You're that little stick that can move a big organization. And you develop a culture then around not only a personal brand, if you're the leader doing it, but a culture around when we do things as an organization, we do it with intention to create business results and business outcomes. And learning isn't an event. It isn't something you go to once a year. Uh Probably we, we live about 40 miles apart, but you can probably hear me screaming 
every time somebody says, well, in my company, we have a budget that enables us to go to one class a year. Yeah. Yeah. And it, my blood boils because so what? So you go to one class a year, what's that going to do? Yeah. And, and you, and you take a day out of work to do it. You go somewhere, then you come back and there's a ton of, there's all the logistical stuff that comes with it of like, you then have to spend all this time catching up from the time you missed because business doesn't stop. And by the time you get caught up and you know, like handle all the logistics around that, the reality of how much behavior change then shows up a week or two or three later, for a lot of people, and you and I have both seen this, is kind of minimal. Yeah, because the course isn't designed to drive a behavior change. It's designed to deliver a learning outcome with the underlying assumption that if you give people knowledge, they will use it. Well, as we've seen plenty of times, even in our own experience, We've gotten knowledge, we've been to a class, but then we went back to work and got busy and we kept doing everything the same way. And so without that behavior change, there's really no value in that. And, and just doing learning for the sake of learning or because learning is a good thing, well, that's why we send our kids to college. They, they learn stuff, they grow as people. But in corporate universities, we're not just trying to help them grow as people. We're helping them to grow as professionals who deliver business outcomes. Yeah. The thing I'm hearing you say, like, just so, like you said at the beginning, begin with the end in mind. It's let's not start with like creating the curriculum. Start with what's the out, what's the business result we're trying to accomplish, and then what are the behavior changes together, and you work backwards exactly. in order to then tactically put together. And and the tactics you can have someone do that, like you can bring in someone to do those pieces of it. But the what are the business outcomes we're trying to accomplish? What are we trying to do? That's the kind of thing that if an executive team comes to you or comes to someone else and says, hey, we, we know where we're trying to go and what we're trying to do, that makes it a lot easier for then that program or that university to develop and emerge in such a way that actually supports the success of the organization. Absolutely. Yeah. So working backwards, not from learning outcomes, but from business outcomes. And you know, through the years, we've talked a lot about knowledge management when we say people are our greatest asset, we don't just mean the strong men in our organization or the dexterous hands. We actually mean the knowledge in the heads of our workers. So that's that's what we manage when we manage people. We manage their knowledge. And a few years ago, I coined the term wisdom management. Knowledge is what you know, but wisdom is the ability to apply what you know. And so the advanced version is not just doing a program, whether it's a course or experiential learning or coaching or mentoring to drive a specific business outcome, it's building into it a way to ensure that the people who go through the program actually apply it and use it. Not just have the ability to apply it and use it, but in, find some way to ensure that they will apply it and use it. So you build the structure around that for that change to actually happen. Right. And so the class doesn't end if it's a class the day it ends. There's something, some sort of follow-up, some sort of action that happens afterwards to ensure that it's used. Mark Allen of Pepperdine University, thank you, sir, for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dave. Mark and I both spent a lot of years in the training business, and when this podcast started back in 2011, I did a series not that far into our library on some of the key things I think that leaders should know about training and working with trainers, doing training 
programs and maybe even doing training yourself. So I'd recommend a couple of those in the context of this conversation today. One of them is episode number 32. On that episode, I tackled the best way to do on-the-job training. Of course, not every organization has the funding or resources to build a leadership development program or a training program, and not everyone has access to a corporate university, although I know some of you do, but everyone has the ability to do on-the-job training. It's that 70% of experiential learning that Mark and I talked about in this conversation. How to do that is in episode 32. If you follow some of those key steps, it will get you started on thinking about daily actions and behaviors you can take as a leader in order to help people to learn and to encourage forward movement. Again, that's episode 32 for that. I'd also recommend the episode right after that, episode 33, how do you strategy and evaluation in training? Bonnie joined me on that episode. So it was one of the first ones that she was on. And we talked in detail about evaluation and putting together training and talent development experiences so that they really do produce results. And Mark mentioned in this conversation, the model from Donald Kirkpatrick, we went into some detail in that in episode 33. So if you are in the process of putting together a training program or thinking about it or starting to build something broader, episode 33 is certainly a great place to start. And then I'd also recommend episode number 35, how to hire a trainer or training company with Aaron Kent. Aaron was the president of the Dale Carnegie office that I worked for for a number of years at that time when we aired that episode. And Aaron and I sat down and we really looked at it from the perspective of folks who were in the training business of what would we do if we were going out to hire a trainer or to bring in an outside organization or to ask someone to build a program for us. What are the questions we would ask of being in that industry or that we'd want our clients coming to us asking? So if you're going outside and asking for help and hiring someone, potentially, episode 35 is a great listen for you. And then finally, I'd recommend the last time Mark was on, episode 155, Three Strategies to Build Talent in Your Organization. We did a deep dive on some of the key principles from Mark's most recent book, The Aha Moments in Talent Management, and we did a little more depth on a few of the areas from today's conversation. It's a great complement to what you heard here today. Again, that is episode number 155. And you can track down all of those past episodes on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That's because you can access the entire library searchable by topic. And one of the uh, topics you can search for is training skills. Another one is talent development. Uh, all these episodes are tagged under that. And uh, as uh, you've heard on the show before, there's only a certain number of episodes we can send to all the podcast directories and Apple Podcast and Spotify. Uh, but the library on the website has everything. So if you go in there searching, looking for something, it will uncover all of that. Plus, you'll get access to my weekly leadership guide, the member cast, all the book notes, and a ton more inside the free membership. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, and you'll be off and running. Have a fabulous week, and I look forward to seeing you back next Monday. Take care.